Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Playing apparently this. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night, August 13th, 2020, as the Chicago White Sox are off today, and uh, probably tomorrow, uh, as it looks like that has been official, that the Chicago White Sox will be off tomorrow, as they'll be looking to play a doubleheader on Saturday against the St. Louis Cardinals, and... uh, yeah, if if that still happens, and I say that as a question because it's still unclear on what's going to be happening this weekend from everyone involved. And I know it can be very frustrating, uh, especially from a White Sox perspective on what will happen this weekend as the St. Louis Cardinals. We have multiple reports now that have just come in that they could be renting cars and driving their way from St. Louis to Chicago. Uh, And we're expecting the White Sox to play their first seven-inning doubleheader. And we still have the Sunday game as scheduled. So what kind of state are the St. Louis Cardinals in? They've only played five games in 2020, while the White Sox have played 19. Well, join us later on Sox Machine Live is a familiar voice to White Sox fans. It'll be Chris Ranji of 101 FM ESPN St. Louis, as he'll share the latest intel on the Redbirds. But first, the Chicago White Sox, again, are 10-9 and after winning their last two games. Two games, I think, were very critical in this young season if this team has postseason aspirations. And they were sparked by an outspoken pitcher and the return of Tim Anderson. Let's start there, as joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. It was a good series win for the White Sox against Detroit. 
And like I just mentioned, if this White Sox squad wants to make the postseason, they have to win these series against the Tigers and Royals. Big thanks to the offense for finally getting on their slump, but it took Dallas Keuchel calling out some of his teammates in the process. Was this the series, uh, this series, the wake-up call that the collective roster needed? I think it helps. I think part of it is, you know, my theory that the uh, Twins and Indians are just built to beat the White Sox based on their strengths being overpowering for the White Sox, uh, the way the White Sox roster is uh, built right now. But uh, I think there's always going to be a tendency to feel really terrible about how the White Sox look after coming out of one of those two series, but then they can rebound with a a series against a lesser opponent and the Tigers are that I think what was important was that the Tigers came in playing pretty well and the White Sox showed them which roster was better. Uh, that's, you know, the whole Hawk Harrelson theory about it's not who you play. It's when you play them, <laughs> the White Sox, you know, played the Tigers when they probably wouldn't want to under normal circumstances, but they came out ahead. So I think that's a pretty good sign. What do you think about Dallas Keuchel being the one to call out his teammates early in the year? Well, I think that's kind of what they they got him for was that veteran leadership and somebody who's not afraid to speak up. I think the White Sox have gotten a little bit of trouble with that before and not finding the right guys or, you know, like I'm thinking like Todd Frazier or Jimmy Rollins or, or you know, players along those lines who were brought in for veteran leadership, but somehow never quite made it work. With Keuchel, I think, uh, you know, him being a pitcher makes it a little bit difficult because I think, you know, pitchers kind of tend to their own business and position players really are the ones who talk amongst themselves because of the whole idea of, you know, it's kind of like I'm thinking of like Bears teams that, uh, of recent years where the defense is good, the offense is terrible, and you'd have uh, Lance Briggs going off and Jay Cutler or something like that, or Craig Krenzel or whoever was the quarterback at the time saying they need to pick up their game. Usually they try to keep it to themselves, but... It seems like Keuchel did tell his teammates what he was going to say. And and that, I think, you know, makes it seem less like finger pointing and more like, uh, um, you know, just communicating what everybody needs to know, both inside the clubhouse and outside the clubhouse. And there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that. I think the only risk is, you know, if Keuchel said what he said and then the White Sox lost 5-1 to one in the next day, do you have to say something else? Do you have to say it'll take a couple days to set in? Does you know, Do people worry now? Do you have to go to that well too often? So fortunately, the White Sox took care of business the rest of the series. They won it. And uh, with Keuchel, uh, he can lay low for a while and not really have to uh, worry about, uh, you know, sounding like the school marm or something. Right, because... There are some fans, Jim, who believe that it should have been Rick Renteria being the master motivator and saying what Keuchel has said and calling out his team. I disagree with that notion because I think it carries a lot more weight having a veteran like Keuchel who has experienced winning, whether I know it's tainted with the Houston Astros World Series championship uh, with the cheating. But Keuchel has experienced winning, and he's experienced postseason success. And he's saying this to a ball club, other than very few players, that most of his teammates have never won before, Jim. And kind of going back to where having like Rick Renteria, who's been around for a while now, if he says something like this and the White Sox fall flat on their face, then you and I are having the conversation of, has Renteria lost the clubhouse? Which may be nonsense, but... 
the White Sox at the time were really struggling and can Renteria continue to motivate a rebuilding team into being a contender because Renteria doesn't necessarily have that track record as well in his managerial experience managing winning ball club. Uh, so I, I did appreciate that it was a veteran like Keuchel who who did make the comments. Uh, but do you think that it should have been Rick Renteria as some fans had hoped for or expected? No, I think it's, you know, if they have veterans who can deliver the message, I think that's preferred. And uh, that's one area where the White Sox have historically been weaker or short is the veteran who is brought in to provide leadership. And either that veteran does not produce enough to be able to talk and, and, you know, come off as lecturing teammates. You know, I'm thinking like Adam LaRoche or, uh, you know, Jimmy Rollins or, you know, even, even though Rollins did, I think, lead to LaRoche leaving, but, but uh, just, uh, you know, James Shields is one who, you know, made some sort of impact with some pitchers, but also pitched so terribly that he really couldn't be taken seriously uh, as a messenger. But Keuchel comes in, all four of his starts are good. You know, the, the White Sox could have won every game that he pitched. And that's, you know, the kind of efforts uh, the White Sox have really not had. You know, they've been in short supply, the veteran who comes in and looks exactly like he should. So may as well take advantage of that situation and and let that guy speak. And, uh, you know, Renteria, is a, I, it seems like almost be like a good cop, bad cop right now where, you know, Keuchel is delivering the message and, and Renteria is saying that uh, he's not panicking and it's too early. And I think both sides are valid. You know, the way the White Sox played against the, uh, the Indians then into the Tiger series was uh, lackluster and, you know, I wouldn't say unwatchable because I watched it, but just sleepy. Uh, <laughs> the games got over quickly. The White Sox seemed to want them to get over quickly. And uh, so, you know, it makes sense for somebody to speak up, but also you have a lot of games left. You have a lot of guys banged up. Uh, Renteria really can't go pulling the fire alarm or anything. You know, he's got to keep it together and and stay on message. So it's probably good that uh, they have both of those, both of those things in their ear because both are pretty much true. Well, while Keiko lit a fire under the white Sox butts, Tim Anderson's return is a good thing for the ball club. He went five for nine in the series with the leadoff home run that sparked a terrific Wednesday for him as Anderson was a double shy of hitting for the cycle Anderson started this season, Jim, 2-for-14 in that opening weekend series against the Minnesota Twins. Since then, despite the game's miss because of injury, Anderson is 13-for-25 hitting with only five strikeouts and seven extra base hits, four doubles, a triple, and two home runs. That will play. I said a couple weeks ago that Luis Robert will be the long-term White Sox leadoff hitter. I still stand by that thinking because I believe that Robert will eventually be the better hitter. But Jim Anderson, after his leadoff home run on Wednesday, was silencing his critics who thought he should be bumped off the leadoff spot. It's kind of hard to argue with Anderson when he continues to rake like he has. Is Anderson right now the White Sox most important offensive player? He helps. You know, we, we watched Larry Garcia take his place, and Garcia played pretty well. I think he, he played, a, you know, a respectable shortstop and, and filled in uh, more than adequately for somebody of his caliber, uh, exactly what you want from a backup utility guy who can fill in for a week. But when you see Anderson at the top of the lineup, it's a different feeling, especially the Anderson of recent vintage that won a betting title and looks intent on maybe winning another one with the way he's playing. And it's a different 
it's just a different looking lineup. It's just a lot more dynamic, especially uh, how much he's running. Like that's I think one, one thing that surprised me was how often he was in motion coming off a groin injury. Uh, he looked decent in the field. Uh, I think there's one play that maybe he could have made with a little bit uh, more reps under his belt this season, but uh, fired wide on a spinning throw. But otherwise he looked fine there and was really active on the base paths, took uh, two bases on a grounder because of the shift uh, was able to stay out of double plays um, you know, had a lot going for him and that's just something I think when he's feeling it and he's supremely confident in what he's doing feels, you know, at the top of his game, both, you know, on a hot streak and also hundred percent, it's just a different player and, and one, the white Sox don't have, and one that makes the game look fun. And, you know, we've talked about it a lot over our time doing this, you know, kind of like the Paul Canerco mode of white Sox play where just baseball is toil and, uh, you know, it, it's mostly failure and you're just relieved when you don't fail and just, uh, you know, hanging heads back to the dugout and uh, lots of, you know, long paragraph answers about what's going wrong and to have Anderson come in and have some fun with it, you know, uh, uh, backpedal out of the batter's box, uh, you know, go on kind of a, uh, a dramatic monologue in his, in his uh, post-game interview. It's just, uh, it's fun. And, uh, you know, it, I think that's kind of what Anderson wants to bring to uh, the Sox as a whole. And I think it does make a detectable difference. Also, I think it helps play the Tigers. <laughs> that's another thing. But it's just, it's, uh, it's a different feel for the lineup. And, you know, when he's, you know, hitting the, uh, you know, when he's got that kind of life in his bat, the kind of pop, the, you know, the, the flick of the wrist that sends a ball 10 rows deep in the left field, that just adds so much, uh, even to his profile last year where the power kind of dropped off a bit, but the batting average is there when, when he has like the super ball bat going on, that's, uh, uh, that's just a whole nother level. Well, Mr. Senator, you did not answer my question though. <laughs> my question was, is he the most important White Sox oh, I think, offensive I mean, player? I think so. I think just in terms of tone. Yeah. I, I think. Okay. At his peak, you know, I, I think uh, Luis Robert can do more just because of the power. But I think just when it comes, you know, that's that's placing too much on on Robert. And I think that, uh, you know, Eloy Jimenez is right now in a funk in himself. I think they probably go back and forth, I think, Anderson and Jimenez. But Jimenez has never shown it for as long as Anderson's shown it. And so I think, you know, if you're looking for a guy to count on to be like a bedrock of the offense, and I think Anderson is that guy who can set a tone and feel confident that he's set it and that it's not going anywhere for a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm just poking fun at you, Jim. But oh, yeah. It, it, it's fascinating, though, because, again, you and I have been doing this for seven seasons. And uh, I remember when we were excited when Tim Anderson was called up. And I remember the scouting reports of offensively, he's going to steal some bases for you. He'll surprise you a little bit with his power, but he'll never ha- have a high batting average. And he's going to probably bat towards the bottom of the lineup. But you want his athleticism in the lineup every single day to present day where it's like he's 13 for 25 and he is coming off winning the batting title in 2019. And while there are many who think that could have been just a fluke performance, he's wasting no time, Jim, in 2020, proving that that was not a fluke, uh, that it's not some type of bab of magic. Uh, he's hitting the ball hard again in 2020. So in a way he's creating his own luck and he's still putting the ball in the seats. As you mentioned, Uh, I am, I am very surprised. uh, And it's a pleasant surprise, Jim, on the type of player that Anderson has evolved uh, over the last four seasons that we've watched him. Yeah, it's, 
you know, the it's fun watching how he's improved and how he's been able to win a batting title without really changing who he was. You know, I think the the idea when he was in Charlotte was that, you know, he hit over 300 in Charlotte. And that was just a very supremely aggressive hitter, really big hitting area. And, you know, the league would have to beat some plate discipline into him just with a lot of uh, breaking stuff away, high fastballs, getting him to chase and expand and just teach him, like, that's no way to live. <laughs> Instead, Anderson's just... Uh, I think he's a little bit more patient or he's a little bit uh, better at putting the bat on the ball on, on pitches he can drive to where he doesn't follow him off. He doesn't let the bat go longer. He capitalizes on mistakes better than he did his first few years in the league. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's uh, just fun how he can win the batting title drawing as few walks as he has with the big walk to strike out disparity. And I think that's improving this year. I think the plate discipline's a little bit better uh, or at least his ability to, extended bats and, and fight harder and not feel like uh, he's he's uh, up against the ropes. It, it doesn't really seem like it makes a difference whether he has a, a no count or two strikes on him. And uh, that's, I think, probably how he had to succeed based on his extremely aggressive profile. And when you have, uh, you know, I guess when you have the kind of uh, prospect development the White Sox have had over the years where this is a very common thing where players don't draw walks and we've seen uh, you know, a number of players just not be able to make it because they can't walk enough to offset the strikeouts they generate, the ground balls, the weak ground balls they hit, et cetera. It's fun to see somebody overcome that without, you know, or it's weird. Yeah, I would love to see Anderson draw more walks, walks, but if that's not who he is, then it's not who he is. But just the fact that he's still a very effective offensive player despite that, it's, you know, I'm always for seeing players succeed in ways that aren't expected just to make make things seem more possible, you know, just, you know, not be able to write off players because they have a flaw. Um, and that's, I think the, the most exciting thing about Anderson is just, he, he, he opens up a whole nother way to succeed that, uh, you know, maybe we didn't think was possible. And I still think it's, a, uh, an easy thing to emulate, but you know, when a guy, if next Anderson comes up like Luis Robert, I suppose is that next Anderson, somebody who's extremely aggressive and, uh, needs to learn his way around the majors a bit, you know, that's, it's nice to see somebody who's already in the roster show that he can make that work as long as, you know, he just sticks with it and, and just uh, learns a little bit about his limitations, but doesn't try to cave in and just uh, be too disciplined and fake it and just get into bad counts and not be who he needs to be to succeed. One player that I hope starts making a transition is Dylan Cease. Cease on Wednesday did not walk a batter and he made it through six innings on Wednesday those are things that you want to give a thumbs up to and you want to be happy about as a White Sox fan. And if you look at the box score and you see five runs scored but only one earned, you may think, well, the White Sox defense really did not help Dylan Cease at all. That's not particularly true if you watch the game. What caused the unearned runs is catcher James McCann wanting a slider and Cease throwing a fastball uh, that found itself bouncing off the backstop. And uh, even though it ended up being a strikeout, the hitter easily reached on base and then Cease allowed a home run. They gave Detroit a 5-3 to three lead and caused a little worrying, at least for me, watching the game. In that start, Cease only struck out five batters and he allowed eight balls in play with an exit velocity of 95 plus miles per hour or what StatCast counts as hard hit. It's the most hard hit contact Cease has allowed this season. So, Jim, it's good to see the walks begin to reduce in each of his starts. 
but the strikeout numbers are not there for Cease, and the home run rate per nine innings is approaching James Shields' scary territory, and the command is still problematic. Am I expecting too much from Cease in his second year? Because I feel like he's underperforming based on the stuff that he has and my expectations for him. I don't think it hurts to have high expectations for him just because we did see in spring training and in summer camp that he did have the ability to be better with his fastball command and with his curveball uh, command, you know, both as a setup pitch and a putaway pitch, being able to pitch backwards and forwards to where we know there's a better pitcher than we've seen. And so I don't think it's unfair to hold that. Yeah, I would say if you're trying to project a team and, and trying to uh, understand what you have, I think you try to undersell uh, or underestimate what Cease can provide. So I think his performance uh, in terms of what he's offered so far, a very uh, a kind of a sketchy 3.26 ERA, that's probably something where you say like, yeah, that's what we expected. That's what we had to expect and, and what we had to build our team around and what we had to build our con- ideas of contention around. But when it comes to actually, you know, watching him and following him and and and, and placing on him, I think that's fine. And I, I imagine he would say the same thing that when he's firing his fastball high and wide and, and you know going you know across the plate from where McCann or or Grandal is set up and he's spiking the curveball into feet and uh, it, it's just not the they're not competitive pitches and he gets in bad counts or he uh, you know, can't. Uh, he can't find a setting for his fastball between up and away and down the middle that I imagine he wants to be better than that too. And he knows he can be. So it doesn't strike me as unfair to be disappointed. Um, yeah. It's just uh, the difference between, you know, being realistic in terms of um, yeah, the hopes place on a team, but also just uh, these are competitors. And I think Cease would be the first to admit that he hasn't been exactly what he wants to be. And it just seems like that the old 2019 problems of just him over rotating being somewhat misaligned to where he's almost like a, uh, yeah, I'm just thinking of like a batting cage machine that's just pointing slightly the wrong direction. And you almost have to, like a hitter almost has to stand on the plate to uh, to be able to get pitches he wants to hit. That, that kind of reminds me of, uh, or that's, that's the picture I have in my mind of just where he fires his fastball. And it seems something fixable. And uh, one thing I would like to see is, you know, Grandal talked about an idea for fixing cease and uh, you know, what he had seen and just, he had been very excited to work with him and it's been McCann catching him so far. And I wonder if that's something where, you know, once the schedule evens out and you're having uh, you know, a number of night games in a row and you don't have to worry about scheduling that maybe Grandal catching him to see if he can make some in-game mechanical adjustments might be something he needs. That's a good point, Jim. That is a good point. But yeah, cease's FIP is over six. Again, his ERA is 3.26. If you want to be optimistic and you want to be positive, you'll point at that and say, Cease is having a really good start to this season. But then you see a a FIP over six. You see a home run rate of over two per nine innings. And you see a strikeout rate per nine innings at 6.6 strikeouts. With a guy who throws 97 and 99 and has a has really good breaking stuff and he's got a changeup that's developing very nicely. Like the dots are just not connecting for me, Jim, watching Dylan Cease. And again, if I'm expecting too much in year two from Cease, especially in this crazy 2020 season, I'll admit that and I will backtrack my criticism and then just continue to watch and evaluate uh, as Cease continues to learn at the major league level, because I know this is not a normal season. 
Um, but it is a pretty big drop-off in production for the White Sox starters. When you go from Giolito to Keuchel, and then Gonzalez and to Cease, Gonzalez, I understand why, Jim, there's a drop-off in production. He is the wily veteran, soft-tossing lefty. But for Dylan Cease to sell me that he is going to be a critical part of a White Sox, a future contending White Sox pitching staff, uh, that's going to be a number three or even maybe a number two in the future. He really needs to step up his game. And it just seems like you mentioned he's still making a lot of the same mistakes he made last year. Yeah, it's almost a little bit like Reynaldo uh, Lopez, you know, just it like really another uh, reprisal of that. And, you know, it's, you know, you have to give Cease time to develop. He hasn't pitched a full season in the majors yet. So there's that. But it's like Lopez in terms of just feeling like you're watching the same start again and again. But also, like when you watch Lopez, you understand that he basically has a big fastball. But the secondary stuff, the changeup's okay. The curveball, he kind of ditched the sliders and that good. Like you realize he needs fastball command to, I guess, dictate just how successful he's going to be that uh, that afternoon or that evening with, with Cease, you can see multiple ways for him to succeed and that he hasn't been able to replicate one of those ways yet. I think it makes him a little bit more frustrating. And, uh, and that, and that's something too, I think it's, it's not unfair to be, you know, have some expectations just because we did have expectations for Lopez and, you know, we've heard a lot of complaints about Lopez and, and, you know, he's, he's had the, you know, we, we've talked about his pitch profile and we've talked about his, you know, he's talked about his lack of focus or trying to build up mental skills training. And, you know, that's all well and good and valid and such. But I think, you know, when you have a guy like Cease, you know, who's, you know, I guess fitting a lot of the same description, you can't quite let him off the hook as easily. I think you have to treat them both kind of the same, even though Lopez has a little bit more experience given that edge in that regard. But, uh, you know, it doesn't help that he looks a lot alike and maybe, uh, that's a case where, uh, you know, if it goes on for much longer then I think, you know, fans might have to uh, even that out a little bit. Cease's next start is going to be against the Detroit Tigers. So they'll be back-to-back starts facing the same team for Dylan Cease. Hopefully he will have better results and the White Sox will not have to come from behind late in the game like they had to on Wednesday to save Cease and preserve the win for the White Sox. A big part of that White Sox win on Wednesday was Luis Roberts' clutch hit. And we are going to be transitioning to previewing the Cardinals series in a moment. But the last point that I want to make about the series in Detroit, and it's a moment I'm going to be bookmarking, Jim, if the White Sox do make the postseason in 2020, is Luis Roberts' basis-clearing double to give the White Sox a 6-5 lead. And for those that didn't watch the game, because it was a a 12-10 game, and you may have been working or other things in life uh, got in the way, it was bases loaded with one out, and James McCann just hit a rocket, an absolute rocket line drive at the shortstop. And the shortstop almost picked off Jose Abreu at second base. Abreu was just able to get back to the base in time. So you have two outs, bases loaded, and it was just one of those situations, again, the White Sox are struggling with the bases loaded. Before Robert made his hit, uh, the White Sox are 1-for-12 with the bases loaded in 2020 already. And uh, Robert came up huge. The ball almost went over the fence. It was almost a grand slam, maybe a foot shy of Robert hitting his first grand slam. But it cleared the bases, and the White Sox took the lead. And in the last week... I think that hit is pretty big for Luis Robert, Jim, because he's 3-for-25 at the plate with 11 strikeouts and one walk. He's in his first big league slump. 
Is that double the start of Robert getting back on track? I'm not inclined to go that far just because it was Matthew Boyd who maybe shouldn't have been in to face Robert. You know, like that's a case where, you know, that just maybe wasn't good pitcher management and maybe a favor to him. But no, it was an important swing, I think, just for, you know, going back to the top where with Keuchel and his message and, uh, you know, showing that the White Sox can fight back, I think, you know, to really, if you want to go come full circle and tie everything in. That was also made possible by Tim Anderson distracting, uh, you know, rounding third, making the shortstop do a double take and, and pay attention to him. And that allowed Edwin Encarnacion to reach safely on a chopper to the left side to load the bases in the first place. So I think those were all the elements coming together. Uh, and then Anderson capitalizing on a uh, just uh, a pitcher who's having a bad season towards the end of his rope in a certain game, making a bad uh pitch selection to a guy who's very aggressive on the first pitch. I think everything was working in his favor and he capitalized. He almost slammed it. And I think that was important to, uh, I, when he's facing tougher pitchers or pitchers who are fresher and more designed to get him out, I think he's going to continue to struggle, but I think having all those things in his favor fall into his lap and him not wasting it. I think that was important because I think, uh, you know, for the next couple of weeks, I think they're going to be a struggle, but there are going to be opportunities for him just because, some rosters are weaker than others and some players are mortal and slip up. And I think as long as he can punish those chances that are given to him, I think he'll keep his head above water. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all white meat chicken with crinkle cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mm. Buy one and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Well, the White Sox are currently 10-9 and and will be finishing up the first third of the 2020 season this upcoming weekend as the St. Louis Cardinals come into town. Join us now on Sox Machine Live, chatting with Jim about the Cardinals and the current situation dealing with the coronavirus and getting ready to play baseball again is host of 101 ESPN St. Louis's Fast Lane Show, which you can listen to on weekdays from 2 to 6 p.m. It's old friend Chris Ranji. Machine podcast, of course, with the White Sox and Cardinals playing apparently this weekend. It's uh, everybody around the Midwest knows it as the Ranji Cup, White Sox versus Cardinals. Who is sponsoring the Ranji Cup this year? Oh, my God. Um, uh, hydroxychloroquine, whatever the hell that stuff's called. <laughs> they're, they're sponsoring it. Awesome. Because we all have malaria and lupus. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, with the Cardinals being kind of... Is that the answer you were looking for, Jim? Yeah. Is that what you wanted me to say? Okay, yeah. good. I mean, like, right. it's as good as anything. But, yeah, when it comes to uh, comes to the Cardinals and just being very much in the center of, you know, all these things converging. And, and, and you know, I, I guess I followed it uh, kind of casually at first, the whole outbreak, and then just it became impossible to ignore. But it just seems like it's been like a... A drip, 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 a test here, a test there, traveling here, being canceled there. What's it been like, 
you know, covering it, you know, being on the on the radio circuit and trying to stay on top of it and relay information to your listeners? Well, it's uh, I okay. Our whole operation relies on sports being played, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of insight. I mean, just like anything else, any other any publication or any other media company, any company is going through issues because of COVID, people getting laid off, um, revenue dropping rapidly in some cases. For us, it was it was pretty significant. Like in the first couple of weeks in March, it just tanked. A lot of things tanked. A lot of sponsors pull out because they're not sure of their situations. So then they get out and, um, you know, slowly but surely people come back when sports starts to come back because that's the whole basis of what we do. So we are following along from different angles. There's the number one, you're a sports fan. You want to, you want to watch, you want to be able to watch baseball. You want to be able to watch hockey and, and basketball and everything else. You want to be able to do those things. But also, you know, your livelihood kind of depends on it. So it gets – I think it's one thing if it's, if, it's a, if it's a situation where the, it's just an activity that you really like to do and you can't do it for a while, it's, it sucks. But then when your livelihood depends on it also, in addition to it, it sucks even worse. So you mm-hmm. get good news like, okay – we got through the financial aspect of everything a couple of months ago. There's going to be baseball. We're going to have 60 games in a season. Okay, cool. That's great. Opening day happens. Everybody's kind of excited, cautiously optimistic that things will work out and you're going to get to play a season and, you know, you go through with it. Then you get to see five games happen. And then you, while you were talking about the Marlins having their outbreak, thinking, oh, how awful is this? what's happening in Miami, something worse ends up happening to the organization that you follow Mm -hmm. because we're not a, we're not a Cardinals flagship or anything, but Cardinals baseball pretty much drives everything that happens in the city. It's the most important. It's like the bears in Chicago. You know, there, there are five professional teams up there, but the bears are the single most popular thing in town. Mm -hmm. And the Cardinals are that, in St. Louis, but maybe to the extent of it being like, you know, 75% versus 25% blues, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when they play, we do better. And, and it's just all of our emotions are kind of tied into that as well. And then you have it pulled away from you. And then you have the prospect of them getting back out there and you think, okay, they're going to, they're going to play this series against uh, now, I believe it was Pittsburgh. They were supposed to play. Yeah. It was going to be the, um, uh, the Pittsburgh series. Oh no, wait, that's not going to happen because more people have tested positive. So it's just a, it's like this really weird stop and start and you think something's going to happen. And we still don't have official word at the time we're doing this interview about whether or not for sure they're going to play the white Sox on Saturday, but we think they are, but you, because you've been conditioned to have the rug pulled out from underneath you, you sort of, aren't really sure that's going to happen until first pitch actually happens on Saturday. When it, when it comes down to like all the confusion and all the, I guess, just how slowly this uh, and uncertainly this unfolded, uh, how would you say the Cardinals have handled it and, and the league has handled it? And is one more responsible over the other, or is it just completely unprecedented? And you know, I guess they're just doing the best they can. Uh, well, okay. I think it's really complicated and I, 
I don't know for sure. I think everything starts with the reality that, and this goes for every city, um, but the reality that every baseball player is is being asked to do this thing in the middle of a pandemic when they're not in a bubble situation. And, and granted, they didn't want to do the bubble, mm-hmm. which players didn't. Most players didn't want to do the bubble, so this is partially on them for not wanting to do it. Also, logistics I think would have been really tough to do it that way. Uh, with 30 teams, it might be different when they get the playoffs, but with this many teams, it would be tough. I understand that. So, therefore, they're being asked to travel all over the region. So, you know, all the Midwest teams travel throughout the Midwest, and you know how the whole uh, the whole dynamic is. I think being asked to do that, being asked to travel, being asked to be in contact with different people with the virus rampant everywhere, I think it's really First of all, it's really difficult to be able to escape it. If you're not in a bubble, it's difficult to escape it. However, there is also responsibility on the part of players and coaches and people involved to follow protocols, to be diligent, and to be safe, as safe as possible. So I think this really starts there because we don't know how it happened. They think that they first got it, contracted it in St. Louis before – the series against um, the Twins before they went to Minnesota to play the Twins at the end of July. That's when they think it occurred. Mm -hmm. We don't know how it occurred. We don't know if it was because dudes were going to a bar or to a casino, and there was a casino story or a theory that was debunked that uh, apparently they had gone to a casino in Milwaukee or something, and – that casino, the Potawatomi, said, no, we don't have any record of any Cardinals player, players being here. So that was the bunk. But we don't know if they did it in Minnesota, or we don't know if they went to a casino here in St. Louis. We don't know if somebody went to bars. Like, we have no idea how it got in in the first place. So everything starts there. And I don't know what the organization did right or not. I do think they came back or tried to come back last week a little bit too quickly. You know, they left Milwaukee maybe a couple of days too early and got everybody together and traveled, and that sort of caused another mini outbreak. Mm. So that was not good. But they were also cleared by Major League Baseball to to go ahead and travel back to St. Louis and get ready for the series against the, the, the Tigers and the Cubs. So obviously that was not, you know, that didn't work. Um, they came back too fast. So that's on MLB probably more than it is on the Cardinals, but I don't, it's so complicated because I don't know who's doing what, uh, or who is not doing what, or who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. I don't know if there are individuals who have been irresponsible or they let their guard down or whatever it is, but it just, it seems like a lot of people share the blame for what's going on now. Yeah, and yeah, you mentioned the casino thing. I was going to ask you about that. Just, I guess the information slash misinformation slash rumors going around and the balance between you know, uh, trying not to yeah, being vigilant about policing behavior and truly what's unacceptable. I'm thinking like the Zach Plesac, uh Mike Clevenger situation with the yeah. Indians in Chicago where they just you know, flat went out and Zach Plesac you know, according to his uh, you know cell, cell phone camera video he recorded while driving without a seatbelt, 
yeah, does not yeah. show that he has uh, any, you know, any kind of uh, greater idea of ex- what exactly he did wrong. And uh, but I'm, I'm just curious with the casino thing and seeing how prevalent that rumor was. I'm still I still saw it in my mentions today when mentioning the Cardinals that the casino thing was still there. I, I guess how do yeah, any advice for people following, people writing about it, about in terms of trying to, you know, sh- should this happen to the White Sox? Uh, you know, I guess, how did you manage the whole information thing or lack of it? Well, okay, so uh, as, far, as far as that goes, we just haven't, it's difficult to say they did something wrong. It's difficult to say the players did something wrong because we don't know. Hmm. Nothing has nothing concrete has come out to say that that yeah I saw uh, Carlos Martinez and Ryan Helsley at the bar together and and it was crowded. There there were a couple of bars that actually just got shut down close to Bush Stadium and they end up being packed on weekends. This place called Wheelhouse and another place called Start. They're right next to each other and they had apparently just been operating as normal, like nothing, you know, no distancing, no nothing. No protocols, just, hey, come on in, have a good time, and, and they would be packed. And I'm not saying that's where they went. I'm saying that there are places they probably could have ended up going to mm. if that happened. But we don't know that it happened. We don't know how it happened. And so that's kind of how we handled it. I can't blame anybody because I don't really know what occurred. I'm also not completely dismissing, just just because the report came out um, backing up the Cardinals saying that they did not, in fact, go to a casino in Milwaukee. Well, I'm not discounting the possibility they went to a casino here or that they went to a casino in Minnesota. Like, I don't know. I'm not saying they did, but I'm also not saying that they did not. I have I have no idea. And that's so we really haven't spent a ton of time on on the how because Mm -hmm. we don't know the how. And all we can do is speculate and I don't think that really helps anything right now. If we get like concrete evidence or, you know, it's corroborated from multiple people and they all say, yep, that dude was at this bar and this is how it happened. And then he went and brought it back to everybody else until we know that for sure. I can't get mad at anybody because I don't know how it happened, but I will, I promise you if we find out in the future that one of the players absolutely went to a crowded bar and then went back and he was the first person positive, which I don't think we're going to find that out now, but if we did, I'd be furious Mm -hmm. and I'll, and I would, you know, I, I'd be all over him for that because this is too damn important. And so I almost feel like in a way what Zach Plezak did and Clevenger, what those guys did is, is freaking worse because they just saw what's going on with the, the Cardinals are still in the middle of it. They, they saw what the Cardinals and happened to them and not being able to play. And these two idiots decided, well, I'm going out anyway. Like, mm-hmm. How stupid do you have to be? You're going to be, I mean, you've got to be really effing dumb to just say, hey, I'm going out. I'll be okay. Like, what's wrong with you, man? This is like, there, there's a lot of money and a, you have teammates and their teammates are pissed at them. You know, like, yeah. and, they're, and they're not afraid to say that we're pissed at them. I think Lindor had some comments and, there was Pucko. another pitcher who did, yeah, Pucko did. Uh, you know, he, he was like, you know, we were lied to. Like that's the kind of that's the kind of, of crap that you caused because you decided to go out when you know you shouldn't, and you just watched what happened to Miami, and you just saw what happened to the Cardinals, and the Phillies having to lose games as well. You got to be real dumb 
to just go and selfish or both, whatever, to, to go out after all of that. Like that, these incidents over the last few weeks for any major league baseball player who's well compensated for what they do, knowing that they're only going to get paid based on the amount of games they play and it's considerable money. Like they, they ought to be scared out of their minds to leave the hotel mm-hmm. and go anywhere else. I, I mean, it sucks that this is what you have to do, but you signed up for it. You, you, it, it's terrible. I hate it. I hate wearing masks myself. I don't like the idea of being quarantined or not, you know, not being able to leave my room and go somewhere. I hate it, but you know what? I would not have signed up and agreed to do it if I didn't want to do all those things that it takes to, to make it happen. <laughs> it's like players have n- never been more relatable to fans. I think, or at least in a long time, because right. they're experiencing what we are. Yeah, it's uh but yeah, yeah. It's, it seems like it's very important to know how it happened. And I, but I think the rush to figure out how it happened or get a rumor started or, or have, you know, get something attraction, I think is where it can all go wrong. That's, that's really the issue. It, it just, I am, I, I think it is important. There are people who will say, um, in fact, I think it was John Mosellock. As soon as this all went down within the first couple of days, a, a his quote was something along the lines of that he thought it was kind of disgusting that people are trying to figure out how this happened. And I completely disagree with that. I think, I, I think you, we need to know how it happened. I think it's, it's beneficial for everybody to know that yes, the Cardinals had COVID enter their clubhouse because X player went to Y place. And that's what happened. That's how it occurred. I think it's helpful to know that it happened that way or if it just happened, um, you know, randomly because they went to a grocery store or a coffee shop and, you know, they, they did everything they were supposed to and they still got it. Like even even that, I think, is a lesson for public health. You know, if you just if it's a way to reiterate the people and I know there are some people who are just never going to get it and they, they refuse to unless it absolutely like happens to them personally, uh, it, it won't matter. But I think it does matter every time you hear a story about a person who says, I was diligent, I did everything I was supposed to, I cleaned, um, I did this, I did that, I didn't shake hands, I sanitized, I did all of these things and I still caught it. Like I do think that it's helpful to know that. I think it's helpful to know that you know you can follow protocols and it can still, and if you're not diligent all the time, something can happen. So yeah, I, I do think it's important to know those things. I just don't, as far as the Cardinals go, I don't know if we're ever really going to find out exactly how it occurred. So let's say the White Sox and Cardinals are able to get the series off the ground and the Cardinals are, you know, go on to play the Cubs and resume normal schedule. How do you see or how do you think the rest of the season should proceed for the Cardinals? Really making up all the games with all the double headers, or do you think that's possible? Uh, do you think they're going to have to cut some, the, any, any kind of uh, sense of either what the Cardinals think or, or just what you think, having seen the Cardinals not play for so long? Well, I honestly don't think it's fair for the Cardinals to um, expect other teams. Well, first of all, it's not fair to them either. I mean, the, the, the team personally to have to play like 10 doubleheaders. And by the way, as I'm talking to you now, uh, Daryl Van Scowen just reported that the Sox and the Cardinals are going to play a straight doubleheader Saturday. Okay. So – one ten first pitch on Saturday at uh, at the rate. So uh, awesome that that's going to go on. <laughs> but I have 
I have learned to wait until first pitch, like I said earlier. I'm not going to assume the <laughs> series is happening until I actually see it happen because we thought they were going to play a series against the Cubs. Didn't happen. We thought they were going to play a series against Pittsburgh. Didn't happen. So I'm not going to, I'm not saying anything. Um, but at any rate, I think that um, it's not fair to other teams. First of all, they've been laid off here now for almost three weeks. I think it's going to be tough to jump right into playing a game, two games on Saturday. That's a tough thing to ask. But it sounds like, you know, if, if you were to just say, okay, Cardinals, here's your punishment for whatever happened, uh, getting COVID in your clubhouse and not being able to play all your games, you got to play a bunch of double headers. Sorry, tough luck. Right, it's too bad. But what about the other teams? Because the teams they play now have to play double headers, mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be punished for the Cardinals not being able to keep COVID out of their out of their environment. Like, I mean, the the, the White Sox shouldn't have to play a ton, and the Cubs shouldn't have to play a ton. The Cubs, who have had no issues, shouldn't have to play a ton of double headers because the Cardinals got COVID and missed almost three weeks. That's yeah. not their fault. Yeah, I think I saw the like, Brewers I, I, had 19 over 17, or they would finish with 19 games in their last 17 days. Yeah, like that's outrageous. And I know the doubleheaders are seven innings at the most. Well, I mean, I guess you can have extra innings, but that's still – who wants to play 14 innings a day multiple times throughout the rest of the year with minimal off days? So I, I, don't, I don't think it's particularly fair to other teams – to force them to play the Cardinals a bunch of times in a handful of games, unless they just really want to, and they want the paycheck. You know, I, I don't, I don't know if that's what they want, but I can imagine that a lot of teams don't really want to do that. And I don't think they should have to do it. But Ken Rosenthal said tonight that MLB still does believe the Cardinals can get close to pretty, uh, pretty close to 60, if not all 60. I just, I don't see how in the world that is possible or how it's fair to a lot of the other teams. Yeah, I think it's also according a little bit of hubris to think that another outbreak with another team can't happen and also you knock down the expected amount of games. So maybe they should keep their eye on 60 just because uh, something else can disrupt the schedule and, and, they don't, and they don't want the Cardinals to end up with like 15 games played because they're right. a little well, bit I, slow getting back it, into it. Yeah, and Jim, I think the other issue is they want them to play enough games that they can be eligible for the playoffs. But we don't even know what the, the cutoff number is yet for games you should have to play to get in, and I think there should be. Yeah. You know, because they, because Manfred was talking about there being a, a win percentage will be the thing that ultimately decides it. Okay, that's great and everything, but, it, you know, if, if teams play 55 games versus 60, okay, no big deal. But if it's... 60 games versus 45 or 40, why should a team that only played 40 or 45 games get into the playoffs? Because they couldn't, they couldn't follow protocols or whatever. Like that's, that's nonsense. You know, you should have to play a certain amount. So I, I guarantee that at least part of this is having the carrot in front of the Cardinals that yes, the postseason is still viable for you because we're going to get you as close to 60 as possible. I still, I just don't see how it's going to actually be possible uh, and, and work out for them to play that many games in this short amount of time. Well, I guess we'll start by seeing if they can play three this weekend and go from there. But uh, Right. Because thanks. you know what, Jim? The other, the other thing is, real quick, the other thing is, uh, if it was possible to squeeze that amount of games into that short of 
a time period, they could have put 70 or 80 games on the schedule and made them play a bunch of doubleheaders leading up to it. You know, if Major League Baseball is willing to do that in the final month here, like month, month and a half, to force a team to play a ton of doubleheaders to get them close to 60, well, then why didn't you just schedule a bunch of doubleheaders prior to that and give the players their 70 to 80 games that they wanted to get paid for? So, like, that that to me tells me that that whole thing was nonsense in the beginning. Um, I don't know. I, I think the entire <laughs> thing is a mess. I think this entire season was handled poorly, even though I'm really glad there's actually baseball on TV. Just the process of getting to where we are now has been an absolute crap fest. Yeah, and I guess we'll see in September, too, you know, should these doubleheaders happen, whether you know there's a body right. count starting to pile up with injuries and so forth, because it hasn't been pretty so far in that regard. So there are a, a lot of complications, but uh, I imagine the fun, Cardinals man. have had... <laughs> basically all of them so far so uh white Sox have been fairly lucky to avoid it and here's hoping that uh you know we won't have to be uh i won't have to be consulting you to see how how to go about handling this but really appreciate your time and uh yeah we'll be following the ranji cup and will you be on hand to present it uh hell no i'm not invited <laughs> i'm not invited first of all i'm not invited secondly i, I don't think I'm, i want to be there right now true I'm trying to i'm trying to stay away from people jim <laughs> Uh, lead by example. Well, thanks for your time, Chris. <laughs> thanks, Jim. And great stuff, Jim, with Chris Ranji. And as far as this weekend schedule for the Chicago White Sox, uh, Derek Gold, as uh, Chris Ranji was mentioning it, of the St. Louis uh, Post-Dispatch, the beat report of the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, reported that the St. Louis Cardinals will play three doubleheaders in Chicago. They're going to be playing a doubleheader on Saturday against the White Sox and a doubleheader on Monday and Wednesday against the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. So the St. Louis Cardinals are going to be very busy. It's hard to tell on who are going to be the pitching probables for the St. Louis Cardinals. Again, they haven't played in so long. I think it's safe to assume that Jack Flaherty and Adam Wainwright will appear at some point this weekend. We could get a really juicy matchup, uh, especially on Saturday, if it is Jack Flaherty and his old high school teammate, Lucas Giolito. But for the White Sox, we know that Giolito is going to pitch one of the games on Saturday. And the Sunday game, which again is not a doubleheader, uh, Dallas Keuchel will be making that start for the Chicago White Sox. Uh, and the White Sox have to figure out who is going to pitch one of the games for the doubleheader. Uh, even though the rosters are at 28 players, the White Sox can add an additional player to the roster for the doubleheader. So that does raise a question, Jim. And again, Jim, great stuff with uh, Chris Ranji as far as discussing the situation with the St. Louis Cardinals and the coronavirus. But for the White Sox, uh, again, because they don't have a fifth starter, how would you like Rick Renteria to manage the pitching staff for one of the doubleheaders on Saturday against St. Louis? Well, one of two ways. One, if if Dane Dunning is ready to go and he's been fully ramped up in Schaumburg and is pitching every five days and, and you know has thrown with approximate major league intensity, um, I think that's been the issue with pitchers so far around the league is just the difference between you know summer camp and, and the majors just a little bit uh, too big of a jump for some some of these arms and and they're having the dead arm period right now. But if he's back and and they don't feel like they, they can scrutinize it and say like 
if he gets hurt, it won't be because he wasn't prepared enough. I wouldn't mind seeing him get a look because like, if it doesn't go well, he can be sent down. It won't be like a, a mark on his record. It'll just be like, Oh, we just gave him a shot uh, back to Schaumburg. Keep, uh, keep working. If they don't go with that, or if they don't feel like Dunning's ready, Bernardo Flores is another option, but I wouldn't mind seeing what I thought they're going to do the last time, which was have Matt Foster go two innings and then Ross Detweiler for three or more. That seemed to be the way they're going, but Detweiler really didn't pitch aside from the ninth inning uh, when they were already down six, and then he hasn't made an appearance since. So it's been a little bit curious about where and what they have in mind for Detweiler, but uh, with a doubleheader and him being able to go along, theoretically, seems like that would be the best, uh, most effective way to use him that would do the most good uh, for the rest of the pitching staff, too. Yeah, that was a question that we got from one of our Patreon supporters, Jimbo Mahalovich, on Twitter was did the White Sox just waste Ross Detweiler's hot start by pitching him for one mop-up inning since August 3rd? And uh, Jimbo can't believe that he typed that. Uh, (laughs) And neither can I, Jimbo. Um, But yeah, I think I'm with you, Jim. Even if you do use Matt Foster for the first two innings because he's had success, he's done it before, I would like to see Detweiler try to go two innings, at least two innings as well, before you maybe get the ball to Cody Hoyer. And if the White Sox have the lead, you still may want to use Alex Colomay uh, for the the seventh inning to to lock up as far as the saving and get that win because Lucas Giolito is going to make the other start. And Giolito has had success pitching in seven-inning games. His no-hitter with the Charlotte Knights was in a seven-inning doubleheader game. And the way that Giolito has been throwing as of late I wonder if there's some confidence that Giolito can go all the way, Jim, that he could throw a complete game in one of the double headers, which would that that would help as far as with this weekend series to try to manage three games in two days and having Giolito take care of one game or at least try to take care of one game by himself and then have everyone available out of the bullpen for the other game. Well, he's done it before Uh, Charlotte in 2017. He threw a seven inning no hitter. So he's got that uh, experience going for him. So, yeah, uh, you know, assuming that he looks like he has the last few times out, not like he did in the opener where he's firing, where he looked like Dylan Cease with this fastball command, then, yeah, I think he can just, uh, you know, take it easy and throw like fastballs, changeups, not really work too much on arm torque and and get through at least six and, and make it easy for, uh, you know, whether it's just anybody, you know, assuming it's not a high leverage work. Anybody can take the last inning who wasn't used in the first game. So, yeah, it's a good pairing. And then you have Keuchel coming in Sunday, who's been pretty reliable in terms of working deep into games and and not making Renteria have to overmanage. So I think they're set up pretty well. And then the last thing before we sign off on this edition of Sox Machine Live, uh, another question that we got on Twitter from Gukas Leogito. And Gukas was asked, wanted us to discuss on this Sox Machine Live. Why do the White Sox have such a dramatic road home split? Is it because of who they played at home? And Gook is looking at the schedule. This is the unique part of the White Sox schedule in 2020, Jim. They have the three games in two days against St. Louis, four home games against the Detroit Tigers, three games at Wrigley, a day off, two home games against Pittsburgh, another day off, and then three home games against the Kansas City Royals. The Chicago White Sox will not be leaving Chicago until August 31st when they have to go to Minneapolis. So it's like the White Sox themselves, Jim, are in their own isolated bubble 
for the next couple of weeks. And if home field advantage is still important for teams in 2020, one would have to think that this is the stretch that the White Sox have to take advantage of it, but they haven't so far. Is it just because of the goofiness of 2020 and playing at your home ballpark, or is it because that the White Sox have struggled at home, in quotation marks, is because they have faced the Twins, the Brewers, and the Indians? Yeah, I think it's more the home slate right now. Uh, too hard to... Uh, um... Yeah, too hard to extrapolate from such a limited sample size and, and the quality of opponents are there. So I'm not too worried about it right now. But yeah, as you mentioned, a lot of home games, a lot of Chicago time. If, you know, they still have the same winning percentage <laughs> two weeks from now as they do right now, then yeah, the uh, well, a lot of people will be angry because they'll probably be in fourth place by then. But yeah, it's, it's going to be, uh, this is going to beef up the sample size, diversify the quality of opponent, and should be more representative exactly how the ball travels, uh, how the sight lines are, how everything feels uh, with the White Sox playing a guaranteed right field. And that'll be nice to know. Yes. Yes, it would. And hopefully the White Sox could take advantage of it. It's going to be really hard to predict what's going to happen this weekend. Again, folks, because the St. Louis Cardinals have not played for so long, and they are now calling up their top prospect, Dylan Carlson, uh, to join the roster, and they could reset as far as their starting rotation. But the Cardinals have not been practicing at all. Uh, they've Their workouts have been very oddly scheduled, in which it's one player at a time for 20 minutes. Uh, the, it's really hard to tell. And if you listen, go back and listen to this episode again with Chris Ranji joining, it's just really hard to tell him what kind of Cardinals team the White Sox are going to be playing this weekend. But we will be recapping that series on the next Sox Machine podcast, which will be released on Monday as we recap what happens in the three games in two days against the St. Louis Cardinals and preview the upcoming four-game series against the Detroit Tigers. But that will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live Big thank you to Chris Ranji of 101 ESPN St. Louis for joining us uh, and previewing as far as what could happen with the Cardinals this weekend and everything that's been impacting the Cardinals uh, since they've had multiple players and coaches test positive of the coronavirus. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris Ranji. And if you don't get an opportunity to listen to the live streams for Sox Machine Live, no worries. Each episode is recorded and uploaded into the podcast feed, which you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Cascade Platinum every night Saves you water every night Come meet me at the dishwasher, baby See, hand-washing dishes at your sink Uses about four gallons of water every two minutes Naughty, naughty, sink. But with Cascade Platinum at your dishwasher Four gallons of water gets the whole job done So the flow of that H2O And change your routine Do it every night with Cascade Platinum A surprising way to save water Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.